hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the first episode of the Around Canada podcast in 2024. Uh, a little bit late getting this one out this month. Uh, it was actually kind of quiet in Canada, kicking off the new year uh, for news stories in the topics that we like to cover on this show. But now there's some cool news stories from across the country that uh, I'll cover for you. So the first one is is changes to Canada's uh, hunting regulations for migratory birds. So currently there is the Government of Canada uh, public consultation process for changes to the hunting regulations for migratory birds across the country in each one of the provinces and territories. As you know, that's regulated federally. So it's the federal government that's got the public consultation out if you're interested in Reading the proposed hunting changes, I uh, go on to the Government of Canada, canada.ca website, look for the Environment Climate Change um, Division, Migratory Game Bird Hunting, and you will should find the place where the public can make, make comments on proposed regulations in, er- in your area. So couple of stories about proposed changes for migratory birds that are uh, currently in the package for the upcoming uh, next couple years. The first one is that Ontario is considering having a sandhill crane hunt. So we know recently over the last several years, sandhill crane hunts have been brought into uh, parts of Alberta, um, Saskatchewan, we don't really have that many here in British Columbia. They tend not to come on the west side of the Rocky Mountains, but um, through the um, central and eastern flyways, they're they're doing pretty good. So Ontario's looking at having having a hunt 
so this there was this story was released by the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters, and so they said um, the seasons for sandhill cranes are being considered in portions of the Hudson James Bay, northern and central waterfowl districts in Ontario. The Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters, in the newsletter that I received from them, uh, talked about this new proposal. Ontario is an important breeding and staging ground for Canada's eastern population of sandhill cranes. As one of three populations in Canada, eastern cranes migrate from the Hudson James Bay region of Ontario and central Quebec, down through the Great Lakes and into the U.S. each fall and winter. The eastern population has been growing steadily since the 1970s with an estimated 6% annual growth in Ontario since 2011. With this population of cranes now well beyond historic recovery objectives, managers are looking to create a season with an appropriate 0.5 to 1% yearly population harvest rate. So sandhill crane and sandhill crane hunting, you know, it's it's been a bit big thing in in uh, especially the eastern U.S. And I think, at least for myself, it was kind of popularized, I guess, by Steve Rinella on the Meat Eater show. Uh, and he coined, and I don't know whether he actually coined this, but it seems seems to be where I remember it, uh, calling sandhill cranes the ribeye of the sky. So everybody seems to be using that term now um, to do with sandhill cranes. A few years ago, uh, a friend of mine brought one back, dropped it off uh, at my place. He got one hunting in Saskatchewan and said, here, give this a try. So I've had the sandhill cranes. They're pretty cool. Um, they're long gangly birds and for such a tall bird they're uh yeah they're kind of definitely got a very small frame but a nice little you know um breast meat on uh on them that's you know maybe about the size of a of a small goose a large pheasant some somewhere kind of in that range but so a little bit about sandhill cranes this kind of peaked piqued my interest a little bit and kind of dig into them. It's kind of the way I, the way I like to operate. So there are six subspecies of sandhill cranes in North America. The lesser sandhill crane, the Cuban sandhill crane, the Florida sandhill crane, the Mississippi sandhill crane, the Canadian sandhill crane, and the greater sandhill crane. Interestingly enough, these are pretty ancient birds. So the oldest known fossil uh, is around 10 million years old. It came out of Nebraska. Scientists think that it may not have actually been the modern sandhill crane. It may have been a prehistoric relative of the modern sandhill crane. But fossils of the current modern sandhill crane have been found in North America uh, dating back between 1.8 and 2.5 million years ago in their present form. So they kind of, you know, those are those are very much uh, like in line with North America's wild turkey. Uh, I believe the prehistoric predecessor, um, Regimenoris, I think was the, the Latin name, uh, the wild turkey was found somewhere, I think, in Florida. And it was around 10 million something years old where the modern wild turkey 
timeframes kind of are Pliocene, Pleistocene, kind of post post epochs uh, of those two epochs. So um, very similar birds as far as game birds that we're hunting today in North America that are basically prehistoric. So in North America in the 1930s, uh, the Sandhill Cranes um, had been pretty much extirpated east of the Mississippi River. Uh, but since then, like a lot of the conservation success stories in North America, uh, their populations have recovered. There are around 100,000 in the eastern Mississippi area as of about 2018. Uh, and they've had quite uh, a year-to-year increase in that, that part of the area. So Nebraska's Platte River and the Mississippi River is kind of like the, 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 the big, spot where the where the all the sandhill cranes the central and eastern flyways um funnel down into on their on their annual migration uh the sandhill crane is generally um not considered as a threatened species anywhere in north america but the three southernmost subspecies are considered to be quite rare so by the three southernmost subspecies i'm assuming they're talking about the cuban the Florida and the Mississippi Sandhill Cranes. Not threatened, but not very common. Now, in Nebraska, Nebraska is like famous, uh, Nebraska's Platte River, for where all these Sandhill Cranes congregate on their migration in the fall. So 80% of all the Sandhill Cranes in North America use a 75-mile stretch of the Platte River in Nebraska. In 2023, in the central Platte River Valley in Nebraska, there was an estimated 1.26 million Sandhill Cranes. And that estimate is 83% higher than what was estimated in the previous year in 2022. So unless there was like a complete screw up in estimating the number of birds Man, an 80% increase from 2022 to 2023 in central Platte river Valley. Um, that's crazy in Canada. Uh, the reports I've read said they figure there's between 500,000 and 600,000 breeding birds in Canada. So it's looking favorable for Ontario, uh, in one, two, three of its waterfowl districts to get a sandhill crane season, um, maybe starting starting this fall. Now, not all groups across Canada are excited about all the changes that are being proposed in the migratory bird hunting regulations that are currently up for public comment. So in Prince Edward Island, the Canadian Wildlife Service has uh, confirmed that they're going to, uh, or they put this into the um, regulation proposal changes, to extend the um, waterfowl hunting season in PEI uh, by 15 days. Uh, That proposal was adopted by the Atlantic Migratory Game Bird Technical Committee, which is a international um, game bird committee um, that is like authorized under the International Migratory Bird Convention um, 
the treaty. And so there's, because the birds are transboundary, uh, there's a committee, an international committee for each one of the flyways that actually goes through population data, um, habitat data, bird breeding status, harvesting, and they vet each country's, the United States and Canada's hunting regulations through the technical committee. So this one, this extension in PEI was, um, got the thumbs up from the Atlantic Migratory um, Game Bird Technical Committee. So what it's doing is it's extending, uh, so under the migratory, Canada's Migratory Bird Convention Act. So the each country, the U.S. and Canada, has a Migratory Bird Convention Act, which is the federal or national legislation that will uh, give the direction or authorize how the countries will manage migratory game birds under the international treaty. So it's basically the each country's way of uh, legally implementing the agreements of the international treaty. One of the things that's in the international treaty is that uh, Canada and the U.S. agrees that in each jurisdiction that the migratory hunting season won't be longer than 107 days. So what this change in PEI does, the 15-day extension, will bring that hunting season in PEI up to the maximum uh, 107 days for that jurisdiction. Um, So it's the maximum allowed under Canada's Migratory Bird Convention Act or that's agreed to in the International Treaty. A group in PEI called Hunters for Conservation don't like this extension. Um, primarily because the extension is going to come on the end of the hunting season. And one of the group's primary concerns is that the hunting season is now running into the winter conditions. Then when water starts to freeze up and the available space on open water starts to shrink and birds get concentrated, they're more susceptible to be shot. So they're thinking from a conservation perspective that 15 days on the end of the season is not good for waterfowl um, because they're, you know, easier to get shot out, I guess. So, uh, you know, as you know, you know, ducks and geese move into big water bodies late in the, in the year, uh, small water bodies as they start to freeze up, you see them trying to pack into it and make it available space. And then finally, they're just sort of like, screw it. That's it. We're out of here. And bang, um, they're heading their way down to the Gulf of Mexico. So this group, Hunters for Conservation and PEI, are concerned probably about that very narrow window of time, probably like a couple of weeks, uh, late November, early December, where, you know, these, these small areas uh, of open water in the freezing spaces is going to make the waterfowl get over harvested. So apparently the Canadian Wildlife Service biologists and the uh, Atlantic Migratory Technical Committee um, didn't share those same concerns uh, about over harvesting. The Government of Canada's Standing Committee on Fisheries and Oceans recently just released its final report uh, as a result of a public consultation process uh, titled Ecosystem Impacts and Management of Pinniped Populations. So it's essentially looking at um, 
seal and sea lion populations uh, on east, west, and the north coasts of Canada. The way it works, the standing committees, there's all different types of standing committees uh, throughout Canada, standing committees on finance. This one's the standing committee on fisheries and oceans. People that represent different groups and even individuals go um, speak and give testimonials in front of these standing committees who then basically listen to what everybody has to say from, like I said, industry, business owners, um, commercial sector representation, conservation groups, scientists from universities, so on and so on that give, you know, their, their statements and testimony on something. They compile it all together, produce a report, and, um, and then a list of recommendations. So the, the go-round of uh, presentations that were made to the Standing Committee on Fisheries and Oceans last fall that were, that were the basis of this uh, report included a bunch of people that we work with here at Blood Origins Canada, take advice from, get information from that help support us. We've had a, a few of these people on our podcast before, uh, which includes the Fur Institute of Canada's executive uh, director, um, Doug Chesson, uh, program manager of SEALs and Sealing, Sealing Network, uh, Rami Vajwa, the executive director of the BC Wildlife Federation, Jesse Zeman, and uh, owner of a seal products business called Natural Boutique, uh, Jen Shears, uh, all gave testimonies to the Standing Committee on Fisheries and Oceans about pinniped populations in Canada. So generally, generally the interest in um, uh, the industry representation, the scientists, these uh, groups, that I just mentioned here are generally said it's it's a good report. Um, it's moving pinniped management in Canada in the right direction. Overall, uh, some of these folks on that I just mentioned have said, yeah, we're we're generally pretty happy with the recommendations that were included in the standing committee's report. Uh, a few of the really key areas that were discussed um, that had some movement on was an agreement for the government of Canada to start working on uh, new international markets for Canada's um, seal products being both the fur and the meat and various health products um, that come from the mega threes and whatnot that come from uh, seal harvesting. So working on expanding international markets, there was some recommendations and discussions around the barriers that still exist out there in the world um, to Canada's getting its seal products into the market, uh, continuing to work on those uh, countries and regions with bans. The two primary barriers to Canada's uh, seal products industry is the United States Marine Mammal Protection Act, which prohibits uh, marine mammal products from being imported into the U.S. and the European Union ban on Canada's um, seal products and polar bear products actually as well. So uh, people were generally happy with uh, Canada recognizing that it needs to work 
internationally, opening up markets, continuing to chisel away at the misinformation in markets. Uh, there was also recommendations for the government of Canada. What did they call all on board, all government on board. So kind of everybody has in the government of Canada has a responsibility for addressing misinformation about Canada's uh, seal harvesting sector with respect to humane harvesting, its seal industry, and its Indigenous peoples' um, rights and livelihoods that uh, revolve around um, pinniped um, population management, harvesting, and, and ability to sell products. A couple other key recommendations were is the continuing of the East Coast seal harvesting uh, opportunities, both uh, the commercial industry and residents uh, having opportunities to harvest seals, and also some discussion or recognition on the impacts of a growing pinniped population on the West Coast being tied to some of the declines of salmon stocks and not so much explicit in the language, but implied uh, they're moving towards recognizing uh, or, or bringing in a West Coast seal sea lion hunt, uh, which would also probably mean that Indigenous people on the West Coast that can currently harvest pinnipeds but can't sell the products uh, may have some barriers lifted on the West Coast so that Indigenous communities can uh, access markets with pinniped products as well for uh, rural and coastal community uh, sustainable livelihood, you know, uh, issues. Last year, last fall, I covered a story about this invasive species of a crayfish that was found in Ontario. So a pond in Ontario was the first place in North America where scientists had discovered the marbled crayfish uh, found in the, in the wild. It was a pond in Ontario. Now, the bizarre thing about this marbled crayfish, so it's an invasive species which gets into a native ecosystem where it doesn't belong. It expands its population and has all these impacts on the native uh, species and the native ecosystem. So the marbled crayfish is listed as an invasive species that can be detrimental. Well, the bizarre thing about the marbled crayfish was its ability to clone itself. So it's a, called a self-replicating crayfish. So through cloning, one crayfish can just start cloning itself and spitting out uh, replicas of itself to completely populate uh, a pond or, you know, a lake or, or whatever and take over. And it's just, it's science fiction stuff. Like it's just bizarre. I had no idea that crayfish or very many species in the world could actually self-replicate. But anyway, since I covered that story, um, some scientists in a working group that's responding to this um, detection, finding the marbled crayfish in the wild in Ontario, has reported that they think it seems that the population has been contained in this one pond because it was drained last fall. Um, so the pond was drained. They think they wiped out the 
um, the marbled crayfish. And so far, they haven't been able to find it in any other adjacent areas. They actually think the marbled crayfish got into this pond in the first place. There was a pet purchased from a pet store, a pet store that somebody ditched. So that's a pretty common story <laughs> when it comes to to uh, uh, invasive species is uh, pets gone wild. I've also covered stories last year about Quebec's uh, endangered boreal caribou. So just recently, a peer-reviewed um, research paper was published in an academic journal called Land that reported that in Quebec, that logging practices between 1976 and 2020 resulted in the loss of 14 million hectares of old growth boreal forest, an area roughly twice the size of New Brunswick. So the boreal subspecies of caribou, the endangered boreal caribou in Quebec, uh, is a boreal caribou, a forced caribou. It's dependent on the boreal forest. So it's not caribou that are wandering around in the open or like the mountain caribou or um, barren ground and stuff. These are like forest dwelling caribou. Um, and so they're heavily dependent on old growth forest. So this report said that, you know, they've known about the endangered caribou, their dependence on old growth forest. Uh, yet Quebec has logged um, 14 million hectares of it since 1976. Of course, the uh, federal government has been critical of both Ontario and Quebec for not protecting caribou habitat and continuing to log caribou habitat. Uh, last year, early in the in the fall, I think the uh, Environment Minister Stephen um, Gilbolt uh, threatened both Ontario and Quebec about using the Species at Risk Act um, to impose stricter rules on the provinces. And, you know, you've heard me talk about that lots. It just never seems to really happen and business as usual. And, um, you know, endangered caribou continue to have their habitats logged. Uh, in this study that was just released, uh, scientists looking at satellite imagery of government data found that there are only eight patches of old growth forest that were greater than 500 square kilometers left still intact between Ontario and Quebec. So like a lot of forest dependent wildlife, um, it's not just that they need like little patches of forest here and there. They generally need large contiguous patches of forest. Um, to, you know, almost occupy their entire um, home range within. So 500 square kilometers uh, is not really that big, but they only found eight patches uh, in Ontario and Quebec that could really, you know, support caribou uh, in, in those patches and fragmented, you know, habitat and clear cuts and developments and stuff between those eight patches. So fairly isolated and not well connected. So continuing to follow the story, or story about um, Quebec and Ontario's boreal caribou and this whole story of logging in endangered caribou habitat is just a story that's been plaguing Canada for years and years now. Maybe one day I'll have a, have a good caribou forest habitat news story to, to cover. 
in Alberta. Uh, I remember last fall also I covered a story about all this fervor in Alberta that the province wasn't going to replace its grizzly bear conflict specialist uh, after that person retired. Just recently, the provincial government in Alberta announced that it's going to spend $700,000 over the next five years to prevent conflict between ranchers and large carnivores, grizzly bears and wolves, in southwestern Alberta. Data on grizzly bears from the Waterton Biosphere region, uh, so the Waterton region of Southwestern Alberta that was gathered between 2011-2014 showed that the grizzly bear population was growing in that region, which is to some the reason why they're seeing grizzly bears ranging east in Alberta, out of the Rockies, east out into the parkland and even into the prairie region. So these funds, the $700,000 over five years, is going to go to an organization called the Waterton Biosphere Reserve Association, um, their Carnivore and Communities Program, which is a program of uh, individuals and program assistants and whatnot that's helping to keep predators, wolves and grizzly bears away from rural properties. Uh, For example, one of the things that the Biosphere uh, Reserve Association has been doing is they've been helping farmers manage attractants by picking up dead farm animals for free and moving those off to um, proper disposal areas. So getting them away from cattle ranching operations, uh, dead cows uh, and whatnot, and probably some horses as well. And because that's attracting wolves and coyotes. I've seen that where a cow dies on a cow ranch operation and they, they picked it up and uh, with a tractor and drove it over and dropped it over the fence on the outside of the cow operation. And up and down that fence line, it was just the snow was just beaten down by a wolf pack that patrolled the fence every, you know, week looking for a dead cow to be flipped over on the other side of the fence. So all they needed was an opportunity to go through the fence or under it and go in and try to get one of the undead cows in the farmer's field. So not a good idea having something as big as a dead cow hanging around your cattle ranch uh, if you got wolves and grizzly bears in the area. So anyways, this uh, $700,000, that's part of what the Waterton Biosphere Reserve Association is going to do is uh, continue this um, picking up uh, dead animal program. Kind of reminds me of um, the uh, the show there. Uh, what are the guys? They were like, "Bring out your dead." Bring out, I'm not dead. <laughs> so Monty Python. That's that's it. Bring out your dead. So that the uh, bring out your dead cows is uh, program is going to carry on in the Waterton area of Alberta. Also, uh, the association is helping to provide uh, funds for farmers to pay for electric fences uh, around food storage areas and grain bin um, storage areas as well in order to keep uh, most likely grizzly bears out of those. So, I mean, a a good news story uh, in a way. It's uh, community members helping community members and um, people don't want to see grizzly bears and wolves cause problems with ranchers and ag operators. 
Nobody wants to see these animals killed um, because of human attractants. So seems like a a win-win situation. $700,000 seems like a lot of money over five years. It's not really a lot of money. Uh, So hopefully it's enough to do a really good job of keeping grizzly bears and wolves away from farm and ag areas in southern Alberta. Hopefully I'll find out some more about that in the coming months this year. Well, that's kind of everything that's gone on of uh, interest in wildlife science, conservation, and responsible hunting in Canada since the uh, January 1st, the new year. So you're up to date on what's going on around Canada. If you got a new story from your region, reach out, let me know. Not all the cool stories that are happening in the country that I pick up on are from uh, major news outlets. Uh, Some of these stories come from people like you. Uh, that know something that's going on. So help me out, help me communicate what's going on in your area to the rest of the country. I think everybody likes hearing these different stories of what's going on. And if they're cool little stories uh, about conservation, science, or responsible hunting or fishing or trapping or whatever that uh, maybe is not mainstream media news, reach out mark at bloodorigins.com and uh, I'll work with you to get a news story together and cover it on an episode of the Around Canada podcast. All right, everybody, I'll talk to you in the next episode. 